uh, question, friends. Uh, do you ever wish things can go back to the way things used to be? Do you ever wish that things can go back to the way things used to be? In other words, do you ever wish that your life can go back to a past time, a past life, when that life was seemingly perfect, when, when everything was, as the young folks would say, all good? Do you ever wish to go back to a time when life wasn't so difficult, when life wasn't so hard? And if you wish to go back to a time, where would you go? At what point of history would you go back to? Now, many of us would go back to our high school days when things were quote-unquote fun. Or many of us who are married would want to go back to the first time when we started to engage in conversation with our spouse, when the love was quote-unquote fresh. But where would you go? For me... I would choose to go back to when I was a child, when life was seemingly perfect. I had no responsibilities. Everyone used to cater to me. I used to run around in my underwear all day and drink my bottle and watch cartoons. I mean, life as a child, if you really think about it, was truly amazing. I didn't have to work. I didn't have to worry about work or obeying traffic laws, or even bills. The fear of getting old was never in my mind. Life was so easy as a child, was it not? Friends, I wonder what point of history you would choose to go back to. I wonder what point of history Adam and Eve would choose to go back to. Let's, add, let's say we asked Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, do you ever wish that things can go back to the way things used to be? What do you think their answer would be? What point of history, Adam and Eve, would you choose to go back to? And I think without hesitation, they both would say, I wish we can go back to Genesis chapter 2. I wish we can go back to Genesis chapter 2. It says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 on down, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you should not eat. For in the day of you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took the one of ribs, took one of the, his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman 
and brought her to the man, then said to the man, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Life was so good when we were in the garden. If we ask Adam and Eve, what point of history would you go back to? I'm sure they would say, take me back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. If we can talk to Adam right now, I'm pretty sure Adam would say, I wish that I can go back and I could see the garden again. I wish I can go back and I could see the, the four rivers again. I wish I can go back and see every tree of the garden again. I wish I can go back and work and I could keep the garden again. And and that work and keeping the garden would be a joy for me. I wish I was not ashamed of my nakedness. I, I wish that I was in perfect communion with God again. You see, friends... As perfect as we think we had it, Adam and Eve literally had everything perfect. They lived in the garden, innocent and sinless before God. They knew God. They walked with God. They had perfect fellowship with God. But knowing, walking, and fellowshipping with God wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. Enter Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 through 7, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to be to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lowing cloths. This is known, friends, as the fall. And what a mighty fall this was. Because of Adam's sin, all of humanity is now cursed. We are sinners by nature, born separated from God. After the fall, God then pronounces three curses. The first would be on the serpent. Verses 15, I will put enmity between, or because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The next curse will be on the woman. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and, you shall, and he shall rule over you. And the last would be on the man. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. As a result of Adam's sin, God drives Adam from the garden, out of the garden, and he places a cherubim and a flaming sword to keep guard over the garden. There will be no way of entrance into the garden. Paradise for Adam has now been lost. The reward of a heightened communion bond and the creator's Sabbath rest is no longer available. I'm sure Adam would wish to go back to the time before the fall. A time when everything was perfect. But the reality is, time doesn't have a rewind button. And Adam is not given a second chance. Now, where do we go from here, saints? How do we move on from Genesis chapter 3? Can things possibly get any worse post-fall? And indeed, they can. Enter Genesis chapter 4. And as we come to Genesis chapter 4, and really through Genesis chapter 6, the context of what's happening is sin is rapidly developing and spreading throughout all of humanity. But not only from Genesis chapters 4 through 6 will we see sin spread, but we'll also see this escalation of evil. Evil is going to be rising. And we first see this evil in Genesis chapter 4 in the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4 acts out for us what the effects of Adam's sin was after the fall. If you want to see how far we have fallen post-fall, you don't have to turn to the New Testament. But rather you turn and look at the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 shows us, really, it shows us and reveals to us what it really means to be autonomous. It reveals to us what it means for us to be a law unto ourselves, to decide what is good and what is evil. Genesis 4 shows us how wicked man's heart truly is and reveals to us how desperately we are in need to be redeemed. As a whole, Genesis 4 is really a sad story of increasing violence. However, in the midst of such darkness, a light is being preserved by God. Saints, this morning, I want us to examine the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 4. And to help us, I have three points I would like for us to consider. The first point would be is two brothers. The first point, two brothers. The second point, two offerings. The second point, two offerings. And the third point, two choices. Two choices. Two brothers, two offerings, and two choices. And if you will, may you please turn to Genesis chapter 4, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it says this, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, 
And she conceived and bore Cain and saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and other fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must roll over it. Saints, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's consider the first point. Two brothers. Two brothers. Verse 1 and verse 2 says, Now Abel knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. We begin Genesis chapter 4 with some exciting and great news. In spite of the fall, God gives to Eve a child. But not only one child, but two children. Eve is pregnant, and she gives birth to two sons. Again, the beginning of the chapter says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, when it says Adam knew Eve, and many of you already know this, but it doesn't mean that Adam had some sort of knowledge of Eve, and therefore him knowing some sort of knowledge of Eve, she becomes pregnant, right? But what it means that Adam had an intimate relation with Eve. It doesn't mean that Adam simply knows Eve like I know many of you. But it means that Adam had an intimate relationship with Eve. Therefore, she gives birth to a son. Now, what's fascinating about the birth of Eve's sons is in spite of Adam being removed from the garden, he has not removed his commission to be fruitful and multiply. In spite of Adam being removed from the Garden of Eden, where he was given a commission to be fruitful and to, be mul- and to multiply. We now come to the post-fall. He has now been exiled out of the Garden of Eden, yet he's still holding on to God's commission, which is to be fruitful, to bear children, to multiply. Adam still remembers the mandate that God gave him back in the Garden. It was to produce godly offspring to produce righteous and holy offspring. And if you remember this commission, the, the commission to be fruitful and multiply was to be brought about with ease and pleasure. But now, because of the sin of Adam, because of his fall, the commission to be fruitful and multiply will now be brought about with pain and agony. And friends, the story of Cain and Abel teaches us that the pain and agony that was, that was given unto the woman in childbearing, that the pain and agony extends past the woman or past the pain the woman feels in childbearing. But there is pain in what the child can become once it's fully grown. 
The pain is not just the pain women feel in labor, but there will be a pain that can intensify once that child that is born is fully grown. And we see that in the story of Cain and Abel. The pain of Eve going through labor, the pain that she will feel in childbearing, pales in comparison to the pain of our first son Cain and what Cain is going to bring to her life. However, in spite of the pain Eve had to go through to produce her first son, she couldn't have been more happier. I mean, Cain, I mean, Eve is going to be a mother. That should make anyone happy. However, the reasons why many mothers are happy once they know that they are going to, that they are pregnant and once they bear children was not the same reason Eve was excited about this baby boy. Again, verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but mothers who bear children typically are excited for the simple fact that they are going to be a mom. But Eve, on the other hand, was excited because she thought that the curse was undone. Again, Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But that's a really strange way of putting it, is it not? That's really strange. That's, that's something women don't say after they have give, just given birth to a baby boy. The first things moms never say after giving birth to a son is, I've gotten a man. They, they know, though, that 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 infant is going to grow up to be a man one day. However, what they don't recognize it as first is a man. But usually they say, oh, look at my precious baby or look at this little infant. But they never say, I've gotten a man. But there's a reason why Eve says this. There's a reason why Eve doesn't say, I have gotten a baby boy with the help of the Lord, or I've gotten an infant with the help of the Lord. The original Hebrew actually reads like this. I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Now, why is it important to go back to the original Hebrew to understand what Eve is saying here? It's because Eve sees way more significance in Cain's birth than simply giving birth to a baby boy. She sees far more significance in this child than meets the eye. If, you, if I could refresh your memory, God tells a serpent in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. At this very moment, Eve thinks that she's that woman. Eve thinks that from her, the offspring that will bruise the head of the serpent has finally arrived. Eve thinks that she's that woman and that Cain is that offspring. At the moment of Cain's delivery, Eve thinks that she's gotten the promised seed. Eve sees hope in Cain. She sees deliverance in Cain. She sees the promise of Genesis 3.15 fulfilled in Cain. 
Cain to Eve is the one who is going to crush the serpent's head and restore everything back to the way it used to be. Cain to Eve is another Adam, a better Adam, the one who were who will reverse the curse of his father and lead his mother back into the garden. Eve believed that she had gotten the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Eve had great and mighty hope for Cain. Eve thought that she had given birth to the Christ, but in reality, she's given birth to a killer. But again, Eve wasn't the only child that was born. The text goes on to say in verse 2, and again, she bore his brother, Abel. Again, she bore his brother, Abel. Abel's name means vanity. Nothing. Breath. And in this narrative, Abel lives up to its name of being a mere breath. With Cain, there's great expectation Great hope and promise. The same can't be said about his brother Abel. With Cain, there is mighty hope for future things that's going to come. With Abel, he's merely nothing. He's merely a breath. In fact, Abel isn't even identified as Eve's son but rather Cain's brother. Cain is the important one. Abel is nothing. Verse 2 goes on to speak of these two brothers' occupations. Verse 2, now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Cain takes after his father's occupation of keeping and tending to the garden. Abel is a shepherd of the flock. So now that we have this introduction to these two brothers Cain being the one who is believed to be the promised seed and Abel simply being Cain's brother now with that introduction out the way we will now see the conflict arise as something is going to happen to these two brothers specifically to one brother and what you're going to notice from here on in is even though these two brothers are born from the same woman, they are a part of two distinct families. Let's consider the second point, two offerings. Two offerings. Verse 3 and 4 say this, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first of his flock and of their fat portions. So here we have two boys who it seems have grown up to adulthood. Again, verse 3 says, in the course of time, which can also be rendered at the end of days. Now, there are two interpretations to this phrase. The first interpretation is it's referring to the Sabbath. As you know, the Sabbath in the Jewish calendar is at the end of the week. But there's another interpretation that says that this phrase refers to after the harvest, after the fruits of the earth were gathered in. And Cain and Abel were to bring an offering to the Lord in gratitude for the plenty of good things they have been favored with throughout the year. I think both are true. 
I think that this is a time after the harvest. And the day that they are bringing this, this offering to the Lord and sacrifice to the Lord is on the Sabbath day. But I think what's remarkable about Cain and Abel bringing their offerings and sacrifice to the Lord is the fact that Abel or Adam taught his sons this. Had Adam taught his boys about Sabbath observance and the need to bring an offering to the Lord in worship. Adam also taught his sons the need to be thankful to God for blessing them with crops and livestock. You would think that post-fall, after being exiled out of the garden, Adam would want nothing to do with God or his commands. You would think that. But here we see that Adam clearly has taught his boys at a very young age the need to worship God, the need to observe God and the way God has prescribed for, for them to observe him. Adam has taught them about the Sabbath. Adam has taught his sons about God and the need for offering and worship. So these two brothers bring their, their offering of worship and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, what I want to highlight in this point is the type of offering that was presented to the Lord. Look at verse 3 again. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. So here we have these two brothers. And they're bringing their offerings to the Lord. Cain, being a tiller of the ground, being the worker of the ground, brings to God what he's producing, the fruit of the ground. But I like the way the NIV puts it, because it really describes the type of offering that Cain presented. It says, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. In other words, Cain brought the leftovers of his crops to the Lord. Cain brought the old and bruised fruit of his crops to the Lord. Cain doesn't bring the first fruits of of the harvest to the Lord, but rather he brings to God what was left of his food. However, alongside Cain not giving to God the best that he had, Cain also didn't feel the need to bring to God a blood sacrifice. In the Old Testament, grain offerings, and that's exactly what uh, Cain is bringing to God, it is a grain offering. In the Old Testament, grain offerings were always presented after an animal sacrifice. After an animal sacrifice. So when the Old Testament saint, or when the Old Testament person would bring their offering to the Lord, when they would bring their sacrifice to the Lord, they would present to the Lord, they would come to the altar and present a lamb or a a spotless, unblemished animal. And after that, they would present to God a grain offering. Abel doesn't feel the need to bring to God an animal sacrifice. The animal sacrifice represented the sinner's need of forgiveness and redemption. The blood of the spotless sacrifice prefigured the blood of Christ. 
what Cain was doing was presenting himself and his possessions before God as if he were acceptable without a blood sacrifice. He was acting as though he was not fallen. He was acting as though he was not polluted, that he has not been infected with the sin of his father, that he was not a guilty sinner. And Cain thought that he could approach God through the labor of his own hands. He approached God through works instead of approaching God through Christ. Cain brought a superficial offering to the Lord. He gave to his family first. He probably went to his father and gave to his father first. And then he brings the rest to God. And on top of that, Cain doesn't feel the need to bring an animal sacrifice. He didn't feel the need to give to God his best But he also doesn't feel the need to come to God as a sinner in need of forgiveness. Now let's consider what Abel brought to the Lord. Verse 4. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now if if you know anything about eating good food, my mother makes a killer pork roast. And when she makes that pork roast... What we tend to do as as brothers and sisters, or my brothers and sisters, we go after the fat portion. It's, it's, it's quite interesting when you see this roast that's just been made. You see usually the middle, the middle portion, which holds all the meat, is what's left, but all the outside is nearly gone. Or if you know anything about eating a good steak, you know that the fat portion when you are eating that ribeye is the one that you want to eat last. Abel, being a shepherd, brings to God a lamb, but not just any old lamb, but the firstborn of his flock. But not just the firstborn of his flock, but he brings to God the fattest of his flock. Abel offers what is known as a burnt offering to the Lord. And it says in Leviticus 2, when the people would bring a burnt offering to the Lord, They would present their offering to the Lord and they would put it on an altar and they would burn the animal. And it is said in Leviticus 2, when that animal is being burnt, smoke would rise to the top and it would be a pleasing aroma to God. But not only do we find Abel offering a burnt sacrifice, note, which is found in the law, but also the firstborn, which the law says to bring to God. Leviticus, or Exodus chapter 22 and 29 through 30 says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. And hear this, you shall do the same with your ox and with, or oxen, and with your sheep. So not only is Cain bringing to God, the fullness of his harvest and the outflow of his presses, but also he's bringing to God the best that he has to offer. The firstborn of his flock. What we see in Abel's offering is Abel is obeying God. He's obeying what what God has commanded him to do. Abel's offering is Abel obeying what God requires in offerings before the law is ever written on tablets of stone. Abel brought to God the best 
that he had. The fattest and the most plumpest. The lambs that were the most free of defects and blemishes. Abel didn't bring a torn or lame or sick uh, version of his flock. But he brought those that were perfect and without spot. He brought the best to God. And what was God's response to these two offerings? You have one offering that's, that's lame and sick, that's probably bruised and rotten. And you have the other offering that's perfect. What does God say? Verse 4 goes on to say, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now the question arises, why did God have regard for Abel and his offering and not Cain and his offering? What is the difference between these two offerings? The reason is not because Cain brought a grain offering. Nor is the primary reason because Cain didn't bring a blood sacrifice. The primary reason why Cain offering, why his offering was not accepted was because Cain did not love God. It's not the type of offering Cain presented to God. Rather, it was his heart attitude toward God when he presented his offering. It didn't matter if Cain brought the same thing Abel brought, plus more. If his heart wasn't in it, then it was a rotten sacrifice. It was a rotten offering. Yes, Cain should have brought the first fruits of the harvest to God, but the primary reason for God rejecting Cain's offering was there was no heart in it. God, Cain didn't approach God with a proper heart posture. And Cain's offering reflected his heart toward God. His lowly and second best sacrifice revealed of what he truly thought of God. And saints, Cain's heart towards God in worship reflects ours at times, does it not? How often do we struggle with worshiping God out of the fullness of our hearts? How often do we struggle with worshiping God with hearts that are not fully invested in glorifying him? How often are we like Cain, presenting to God the lame and sick versions of our worship? The blemished and and wrinkled sacrifices of ourselves. How often do we struggle with giving to God what is rightly his? Paul tells us in Romans 12:1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. No, we don't bring animal sacrifices to the Lord in worship like Abel did. And no, we don't bring grain offerings to God like Cain did. But rather what Paul says is we ourselves are the sacrifice. We present the totality of our being, mind, body, soul, and strength to the Lord as a living sacrifice. The question I have for you this morning, saints, is how are you doing in that command by God? How are you doing with that command by God? What type of body are you presenting to the Lord every Lord's Day Sabbath? 
What type of sacrifice are you presenting to the Lord? Are you striving to present your body to the Lord? Or are you still giving into sin daily? Are you striving to present your body as acceptable to the Lord? Or are you observing the Lord's day like your pagan friends do? Ask yourself, am I giving, my, am I giving to God my mind? Or are you bored when you are listening to the sermon? Are you bored when you are worshiping God in song? Ask yourself, am I giving to God my time? Or are you coming to church late, tired, and lazy, wishing you can just sleep just a few more hours? Ask yourself, am I giving to God's people my love and support? And the way you love God will show in the way you love God's people. Or are you rushing out when service is done so you can get on with your day, so your day can officially begin? Ask yourself, friends, is that acceptable worship to God? Are you giving God your mind? Are you giving God your body? And are you giving God your everything? Are you giving God your time? Or are you on your time and not God's time? Are you setting your mind on the things above, not on the things below? Ask yourself, friends, how am I to worship God? What is acceptable worship to God? Saints, worship doesn't start in the church. It starts with ourselves. We must examine ourselves. Ask yourself, saints, what type of worship and sacrifice is God truly worthy of? I warn you, friends, don't be like Cain. By giving to God less of what he's owed and worshiping God out of a rotten heart. Pray, saints, that the Holy Spirit will continue to keep your heart aflame towards God. And how you do that, saints, is not following a 12-step program, but constantly and continually looking to Christ. Pray, saints, that your worship to God will be one, will not be one like Cain's, but will be like his brother Abel. Verse 4 says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Again, the primary reason for God accepting Abel's offering, it was not because it was a blood sacrifice, but because it was done out of a pure and holy and righteous heart. Abel offered his sacrifice with joy, but more importantly, Abel offered his sacrifice in faith. In faith. As Hebrews 11.4 tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel offered a better sacrifice because he believed in the promises of God. Abel, at a very young age, was taught Genesis 3.15. And throughout teenage years and adulthood, he was reminded of this promised Messiah that will come and that will bruise the head of the serpent. He knew that in due time, that promise was going to be fulfilled. That is why Abel brought his best to God. That is why Abel's heart was aflame towards God. Abel expressed faith by offering to God the best of the best, by giving, to, by giving the best to God rather than keeping the best for himself and for his family. Abel, by faith, showed that he was not worried about losing the best that he had, 
You know why, saints? Because he trusted that God could replace the best that he had. He knew that there was something better upon the horizon. Cain, on the other hand, shows his lack of faith in God by offering a sacrifice that did not cost him much. Saints, what is your worship to God costing you? Is it like Cain's sacrifice or is it like Abel's sacrifice? Abel showed dedication to the Lord. He showed that he had a heart after God. And as a result of God's or as a result of these two offering, God does the unthinkable. He bypasses the older brother's offering and accepts the younger brother's offering. Why is that unthinkable? Because Cain is the firstborn. The firstborn is always to be first. But not on God's time and not on God's rules. He he passes by the older brother's sacrifice and accepts the younger brother's offering. Friends, as we close this point, I want you to walk away with this truth. And this truth is this. The Lord looks on the person before he looks at the offering. The Lord looks at the person before he looks at the offering. I want you to consider verse 4 and 5 one more time. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Is there anything there that strikes you? Is there anything there that you notice? Notice how it doesn't say the Lord had regard for Abel's offering and that the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering. But rather it says Abel and his offering. Cain and his offering. What this means is this, saints. The Lord looks at the heart of the person first. He first looks at the motivation of the person before he looks at the offering of the person. You can offer to God the most elaborate worship in praise. And you can offer to God the most exciting evangelism. You can offer to God the best of the best that you have, but if there is no heart in it, God will bypass your worship and he will reject it. So here we have two offerings. Cain bringing the less of what he had. Abel bringing the firstborn of what he had. Let's now consider our last point. Two choices. Two choices. Verse 5 through 7 says, So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. As a result of God rejecting Cain's offering, Cain is immediately outraged. Cain is immediately angry. And Cain is angry At God. Now, saints, let me remind you, or if you never considered this or heard this, let me inform you. 
If you are angry at God, then you need to repent. Or as R.C. Sproul would say, call over glass in your repentance. If you are ever angry at God. There has never been a time in your life that God has given you a reason or a justification for you to be angry with him. However, you have given God a 10 million thousand contrillion reasons why he should be angry with you. Never allow yourself to be angry with God. Look toward yourself first. This anger reveals that not only did Cain not trust in God's word like his brother Abel, but was actually hostile toward the truth. If Cain were a true believer, he would have not been angry with God, but he would have been angry with himself for his own lack of faith and disobedience. If Cain had genuine faith, he would have expressed humility, and he would have expressed deep concern that his worship was unacceptable and offensive. He would have asked God to help him get right instead of being filled with rage toward God. He would have, toward, he would have, he would have uh, seen God and, and, and the way God has rejected his offering as a blessing, a reason for him to do better, not for a reason for him to be angry. But this was an all-new experience for Cain. This is totally different than what Cain has ever went through. For once in his life, Cain is rejected. I mean, saints, let's think about Cain for a second. Cain was the firstborn, which means he's always number one. Cain was the image of paradise restored for Adam and Eve. Cain was the favored one, but for the first time in his life, Cain is the rejected one. Cain doesn't know how to handle this, but he knows that it's not right. And he knows that the only thing that he should feel is anger. So he directs his anger toward God. Cain is furious, but, but like a loving parent going after an angry child, the Lord pursues Cain. So God steps in. He says in verse 6 and, six and 7, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must roll over it. The Lord asked Cain for the reason why he's so angry. Cain, why are you so angry? Now, when God says this, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know why Cain is angry. God knows all things, but what God is doing here is he's counseling Cain. He's, he's helping Cain get to, get to the root of his anger. He's He's opening Cain's eyes to what the real problem is. He's helping Cain contemplate why his offering was unacceptable. He's helping Cain see the the of the irrational of his anger. God follows up with this question in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? It is as though God is saying, Cain, your offering was sinful and unacceptable, but, but if you obey my law, if you do well, then, then I will accept you. God is reminding Cain of his faithfulness to true worshipers. If Cain repents, God will accept him. If he does better, God will accept him. 
Here, the patience and graciousness of God reminds us of what Pastor Antonio said last Lord's Day, that there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. That in light of your sin, in light of your rebellion, in light of your, your false worship, in light of your heart not being inflamed to God, there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. And saints, never think that your sin is big enough for God. Never think that your sin is too overwhelming for God's grace and mercy. But you can repent and he will be faithful to forgive you. God first counsels Cain with love. And now he will warn Cain of destruction. Verse 7, if you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Here we see for the first time the word sin ever being used in the Bible. And it's personified as a violent animal. Sin is personified as a violent animal. Sin is crouching at the door. Its fangs want, want Cain. And like a lion who stalks its prey, sin at this very moment is stalking Cain. Sin at this very moment is awaiting in the bushes, waiting for its time to pounce on Cain and have dominion over him. Cain, you must resist this temptation. Sin is waiting at your door, crouching to kill Cain. Cain's anger and sin is tempting Cain to do the unthinkable. God is telling Cain, you must resist this. You must fight this. But oh, how hard is, is it, thanks, to resist our temptation? How hard is it, friends, to resist that temptation that, that we believe will bring us satisfaction and in Cain's view, in Cain's mind, will bring him justification? If I do this, and all will be made right. Cain's anger is tempting him to rebel against God. God then reveals the intensity of Cain's sin. God turns it up a notch. And he says in verse 7, its desire is for you. So not only is sin awaiting at your door, but its desire is for you. It's chopping at the bits to, to kill you, Cain. The language is similar to Jesus telling Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. God is revealing to Cain the level of demand sin has for Cain. It wants Cain. It desires to have dominion and reign over Cain. And saints, this revelation of sin's desire for Cain is not only limited to Cain, but sin's desire is for you and I as well. Sin is constantly knocking at our door. It's constantly awaking at, waiting at our door. The temptation saints that you feel are the knockings of sin that's trying to come in, that's begging you to come in, for it to come in. And right now, sin, it's pounding at Cain's door. And the intensity is growing in Cain to do something that that he should not be doing. 
the tension and temptation for Cain to sin is rising and it's building and, and it's going to reach an apex point. So God gives Cain one last warning. The end of verse 7 says, but you must rule over it. Its desire is for you, Cain. It wants you, Cain, but you must rule over it. God is saying, Cain, you must have control over yourself. You must think clearly about this. You must not give in. You must master it before sin gains mastery over you. Cain now has a choice to make. He can either fight this sin and roll over it, or he can give in and allow sin to roll over him. Friends, this morning you have a choice to make. You can allow your sin to rule over you, or you can allow God and his word and his law to rule over you. Which one will you choose? The question is this. How can Cain fight and rule over his sin? Here's a better question, saints. How can you fight and rule over your sin? Friends, the answer is found, again, not in a 12-step program, not in a manual that teaches you how to overcome sin and temptation. The answer is not found in and of yourself, but the answer is found outside of yourself. The way to conquer and overcome sin is by looking to the one who has conquered and overcome sin on your behalf. Christ has overcome sin through his life, death, and resurrection. And the quicker you understand that, and the quicker you continually to preach that to yourself, the sooner sin will begin not to have an issue in your life. Now, I'm not teaching perfectionism, but what I'm teaching is that there will come a time when you will be able to say no to your sin. Christ in his life overcomes every satanic temptation to sin. Not to give you a manual on how you can overcome temptation, but to reveal to you how temptation has been overcome for you. In his death, he nails your sin to a cross. He delivers a death blow to sin in order for you to be freed from under the condemnation of sin. He takes your sin, he nails it to the cross, and therefore, and thereby nailing it to a cross, he takes the key. He puts the key in those locks. The sin that you've been shackled with all throughout your life. And he gives you wings to fly. And in his resurrection, Christ shows that indeed sin has been defeated. In Christ's resurrection, he shows that sin has no power over him and no power over those who are united to him by faith. He does that so you can walk freely, saint, as a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new is before you. Saints, don't look to yourself. Don't look to a sermon. Look to Christ. Trust God's word. Rely on the spirit of God that indwells within you. This is what Cain must do. He must look to God for help. He must repent of his sin and trust in God's promises of acceptance. He must, by faith, believe in the promised seed that's to come. He must not give into this temptation. 
I know the tension is rising in you, Cain, but you must not give in. For if you do, the consequences will be drastic. What will Cain do? What choice will Cain make? We will find our answer next Lord's Day. In closing, saints, what do we take away from these seven verses? How do these seven verses cause an improvement upon our lives? I have just two applications for you. Number one, a right heart posture leads, a right heart posture to God leads to right worship of God. A right heart posture to God leads to right worship of God, to God. When you have a, a right, proper heart posture to God, then you will want to obey God on his terms and not on yours. You will have a mind, soul, body, and strength that is, that, that's, that's objective is to do one thing, and that is to glorify God by any means necessary. And number two, be killing sin by looking to Jesus Christ, the one who has killed sin on your behalf. Be killing sin by looking to Jesus Christ, the one who has killed sin on your behalf. Saints, I end with some encouragement from our brother of the faith, the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on Christ. Put on Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Let's pray.